Well, please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. We are coming this evening to the end of our, of our series in Revelation chapters 1 to 3. I, I do hope, God willing, that we'll come back to this book and if God spares me and spares all of us that we'll eventually make our way all the way through the book but it'll be a wee while before we do that. Um, so this evening, we, we bring our, our series to uh, something of a close. And having looked at chapter one, where we saw the, the glorious vision of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's the, the opening words of the book, uh, appearing, you remember, to the apostle John. John was a prisoner on the island of Patmos, he tells us, this tiny little rugged island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. He had been faithfully shepherding churches. He had been faithfully witnessing to the power of the risen Jesus. And then the risen Jesus appears to John and reveals a, a glorious vision of Christ today, Christ reigning, Christ ruling over the world. And he begins with this wonderful vision in chapter one and then with seven letters to seven churches. But as we've seen, there is something in each of these letters applicable to every church, to any church in any time and place. And each one of them, as we've seen, uh, ends with a plea to all churches to listen uh, to each of the individual letters. And so as much as Jesus very much um, tailor fits each letter, if you like, to the original church that he wrote to, there's something in each of these letters for every church in every time and place. And that's the same with the final letter that we study here this evening. So we read together Revelation chapter 3, and we read from verse 14. Let's again hear God's truth. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me in my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's truth. You can keep your Bible open there at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to, 20, to, to 22. Uh, as we look at this final letter of the seven this evening, the letter to Laodicea, and Laodicea, we'll see, was loved, but lukewarm. Loved, but lukewarm. Have you ever had someone say those words that just send your heart sinking into your stomach? I love you, 
but I'm really disappointed in you. I love you, but I'm really disappointed in you. Those words have the potential to cut so deep, don't they? They have the potential to hurt more than any uh, physical discipline ever could. Maybe a parent speaking to a child, uh, a husband or a wife hearing it from their spouse, maybe a best friend saying it. If you heard those words and really loved the person and cared about the person saying them to you, they would hurt you. They would convict you to hear that. Well, in the last of the seven letters to seven churches, this is essentially what Jesus says. He says, I love you, but I'm really disappointed in you. In fact, Jesus says something far stronger than that. He says, you're sickening me. You're giving me a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, in verse 16, Jesus describes the church in Laodicea as lukewarm. And he says that if they stay that way, he will spit them out of his mouth. The last of the seven letters is the most severe. Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say about how this church is doing. Nothing. Up until now, Jesus' sternest letter was the letter to Sardis. You remember he said to Sardis, you are dead. Wake up. And yet even in Sardis, Jesus was able to say, you have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. So there were a few people, at least in Sardis, who were remaining faithful to Jesus and serving him well, but not in Laodicea, friends. They get Jesus' most critical, most serious rebuke of any of the seven churches. And yet, why does Jesus speak to them this way? This way? Why does he speak to them at all? Well, the key to this letter comes in verse 19. Look what he says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Everything Jesus says in this letter, he says out of love for lukewarm Laodicea. And that's not to dilute in any way. We Sometimes we hear the word love and we just think someone is a bit soft. Uh, but that's, that's not the case. It doesn't dilute what Jesus says at all. But even a church doing as poorly as this church is not beyond the love of the Lord Jesus. If a parent didn't love their child, then when that child disappointed them by telling a lie or not doing what they were told or being disrespectful, if the parent didn't love them, they wouldn't say anything to them. It's out of love that a parent disciplines and corrects. And it's the same for Jesus and his church. So as much as we need to take seriously Jesus' rebukes in this letter, we also need to remember that it is a letter written in love from the king and head of the church who cares this much about his church. And so first of all, this evening, we're going to see that because he loves us, we get a warning not to be lukewarm from Jesus. Because he loves us, we are warned not to be lukewarm by Jesus. Look at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The word there for beginning is not saying that Jesus was the first thing God created, of course. Jesus did the creating. Jesus is God from all eternity. But it's saying that it was through Jesus that creation came about. He rules over it. He is the creator of it. 
Paul says something similar a couple of times in the book of Colossians, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the ruler of it. And then Jesus is also called here the Amen and the faithful and true witness. And all of those descriptions, friends, are emphasizing to us that Jesus tells the truth, that Jesus' verdict or Jesus' opinion, if you like, on any given situation is the right one and it is the trustworthy one. And in the case of Laodicea, Jesus tells them the truth and it's an uncomfortable and unavoidable truth. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were. Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot, but you're not. You're lukewarm. In every letter so far, we've seen how Jesus uses pictures that will grab the attention of whichever particular church he is speaking to. And he does the same here for the church in Laodicea. Laodicea in its day was yet another great city, an impressive city, humanly speaking, but it had a great problem. It didn't have an on-site supply of clean water. Uh, the, the archaeological evidence would suggest that the closest river was full of dirty water, which of course was undrinkable unless it was heavily treated. And a lot of writers and researchers suggest that Laodicea probably had to get its water from further away sources. There were two different places nearby that most researchers suggest Laodicea would have had to, uh, t would have had to pipe water in from. And the problem then, of course, was that no matter what the water was like at its source, and one source suggests it was very warm and the other was very cold, but by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, it was neither particularly hot nor particularly cold. The hot water had cooled down to look warm. The cold water had warmed up to look warm. And of course, if your water is either very hot or very cold, you can work with it. Properly hot water can be used to wash and clean. Properly cold water, maybe some of you were reaching for cold water this afternoon. Properly cold water can refresh us on a warm day. But lukewarm water is horrible. It leaves a bad taste. It's useless. And Jesus here, friends, condemns this church as useless as sickening. He says in verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's a church, friends, that makes Jesus want to vomit. What exactly is it about professing Christians or a visible church that provokes this kind of reaction in Jesus? Well, we've seen what provoked strong words from Jesus in some of the other letters, and it tended to be a, a lack of zeal from the church, a lack of care about their worship or their witness. And in fact, Jesus says here to Laodicea in verse 19, be zealous, be zealous and repent. If you're zealous, you care, you're passionate, something, something is exercising you, something is provoking a response in you. This church just didn't care. Didn't care about each other. Didn't care about people getting saved. Didn't care about worship. 
They were a, th a church that thought they were just good enough as they were. They looked at their wealth and Laodicea was a wealthy city. They looked at their wealth. They looked at the beauty of their city. Maybe they, maybe they looked at their past labors for Jesus. And they thought, well, we can look after ourselves. We're a better bunch of people than the prostitutes or the idol worshippers that run around our city. We'll be fine. We've done enough. Jesus finds that sort of attitude sickening. Sickening. It's the same type of attitude, of course, that he came up against time and time again during his earthly ministry. You remember with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus' strongest words, friends, it's always important to remember this, Jesus' strongest words during his earthly ministry were never directed at tax collectors or prostitutes or the people who were demon-possessed. The people who really made Jesus angry were people who, on the surface at least, were good people, clean living, law-abiding, seemingly very pious and religious and wealthy, but who in fact had no true zeal for the kingdom of God. Jesus called such people a brood of vipers, snakes. He said they were like bowls that were sparkling clean on the outside, but were full of dirt and decay on the inside. He called such people hypocrites children of the devil, enemies of God. Friends, what sickens Jesus is nominal religion. Nominal religion. That is acting as though you love Jesus or turning up at worship services when really you just don't care. If someone is cold to Jesus, if someone is just outright very open and honest about the fact that they do not believe the Bible. In fact, maybe they even hate some of the teaching of the Bible. And they don't care about, uh, about Christian morals. They don't care about Jesus Christ. They don't care about, they don't believe that they're sinners who need to be saved. Well, at least we know where we stand with such people. At least we have somewhere to start. And maybe we can even get them thinking and, and provoke a bit of a response from them. But if someone is lukewarm, the sort of person who goes to church most of the time and generally speaking would live what the world would call a good life and they don't really show any dislike for the Bible or the church or Jesus. And in fact, they might even be keen to get their children baptized in the church or they would absolutely never think of getting married in anywhere other than a church. But at the same time, they don't show any real love for Jesus or the Bible or the church. It's very hard to get them to do anything for the church. Very hard to get them to see why things beyond the morning or evening services of the church are also vitally important. Very hard to get them interested in serving in any way. These people are simply confusing and discouraging. Where do they really stand? Do they really care or not? Are they really Christians or not? Northern Ireland, by the way, is full of these types of people and these types of churches. Partly, perhaps, because some people over the years have mixed biblical language into political rhetoric and political slogans. 
Jesus shows less patience and more anger with people who sort of lurch along, kind of pretend to be Christians. Jesus shows more anger for those types of people than he does with people who quite clearly and obviously are not Christians at all and who, spiritually speaking, don't know their right hand from their left. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you come to church to tick a box or to feel like you're earning your place in God's kingdom or to keep a parent or a friend off your back for a few days about not coming to church, Jesus says, I know you. I see your heart. But he also says to his professing church, I love you and I'm telling you the truth. Get rid of your lukewarmness. Confess your sin. Call out in forgiveness. And if you do, Jesus will fill you afresh with real, deep, red-hot love for him, for his people, for his word, for his gospel. And I just want to reassure some of you, because some of you will hear this with a very tender conscience. Uh, and you'll be hearing this and you'll be thinking, well, to be lukewarm sounds awful. It's the last thing I want, to become indifferent to Jesus, to lose zeal for Jesus. Well, if that's how you're feeling, then I would doubt very much that you're lukewarm at all. Because someone who is passionate about Jesus doesn't want to hear this type of rebuke from him, doesn't want to be in this type of routine of living at all. We don't want to become lukewarm. It's the people who are lukewarm that it's water off a duck's back. But to avoid falling into that kind of lukewarm living, friends, day by day, we need to be asking for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to keep kindled within us fresh zeal for Christ and his word and his people. Day by day, we need to, as far as we're able uh, to be making that time ourselves, however short it may be and whatever season of life we may be in, to seek God out ourselves in Bible study and prayer or to hear a podcast or to listen to another sermon at some point in the week or to have some time with a Christian friend to read and pray and talk together about the ups and downs of our Christian lives. All of these things will help us to avoid lukewarmness and to remain passionate for Christ. The Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as oil filling a lamp. Remember at Pentecost there were something like flames of fire that came down on God's people. So day by day, friends, we need to ask that the Holy Spirit will fuel us to be hot and zealous for the cause of Christ. So because he loves us, Jesus warns us not to be lukewarm. But secondly, because he loves us, our needs are supplied by Jesus. Because he loves us, our needs are supplied by Jesus. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. One writer says that verse 17 is one of the most heavily ironic verses in the whole book. Jesus calls them wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The irony being that Laodicea was a very wealthy city. Uh, the archaeological evidence, I'll, I'll show you a clip of it, God willing, on Wednesday night, but it shows that the houses were uh, abnormally large in Laodicea, much larger than places like Nazareth, for example, where Jesus grew up. Um, a 
little bit like some of the other cities we've looked at, like Ephesus and Pergamum. Laodicea had lots of temples and outdoor theaters and modern architecture and even indoor plumbing. And if you think some of the most luxurious places to live today, think of some of the places that you've thought I would love to live there or the top 10 most desirable places to live in the UK. Uh, That was Laodicea and it's time. But Jesus here stuns this church by saying they're not rich. They're poor. They're not people to be envied. They're people to be pitied. Jesus said, and this is one of the the themes of the seven letters, that Jesus sometimes has a, a very different perspective on the church than from what we do. He said to the church in Smyrna, for example, I know your poverty he knew that they were, they were not a, a wealthy church, but he says, actually, you're rich. He says, from my perspective, from an eternal perspective, you have lots of riches waiting for you in heaven. With Laodicea, it's the opposite. Jesus says, you think you're rich because of the money you have in the bank. You're actually poor. And this is an important word again for us, friends, because we do live in a wealthy part of the world. On an, international, on an international level, we are, I believe it's within the top 5% or something like that, of the, or maybe it's 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. We have plenty of food, plenty of clothing, comfortable places to live. We have next day delivery. We have entertainment streaming into our living rooms. We have the latest technology. And yet, despite all of that, there all around us in our country, there are people with needy souls. Needy souls. Maybe you're listening in either here in the building or online tonight, and you're one of those needy souls. There's nothing wrong with relaxing, with streaming a TV show at the odd time during the week or a, or a football match or something like that, but maybe you're one of these people that night after night, Day after day, it's binging as much entertainment or gaming or sport as you can find, and it doesn't satisfy your soul. Hour after hour of liking and following or posting on social media hasn't satisfied your soul. Raising a household of happy, healthy children, as special and joyful as that can be, it hasn't satisfied your soul. Have you been trying to tell yourself, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, all the while knowing that it's not true? Well, the good news is that Jesus can supply all of our needs. And Daniel Aiken, a very helpful Revelation commentator, he highlights from Jesus' words here three of our needs that he specifically supplies. First of all, we need Christ's riches. We need Christ's riches. Uh, Look what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. What is it that truly makes us rich? What is the most precious, uh, what what is the most precious thing we could possibly possess? Faith. Faith, the Bible says elsewhere, is the assurance for things hoped for Uh, the assurance of things not seen. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 7 that our faith is tested through various trials in this life. But nonetheless, he says, it is more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire. 
That's what Jesus says. What you need from me is faith. It's a gift. It's what he gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit, birthing new life in us, causing us to trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. If you have faith in Christ, you are rich beyond measure. We need Christ's riches. We need also Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Uh, Jesus says in verse 18 that he will give them white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. You remember this morning we were talking about Adam and Eve having God cover up their shame. And Jesus used the same picture here with the people in Laodicea. And again, it's a picture that would have hit home with them. Uh, the city of Laodicea was known for manufacturing beautiful black wool. Uh, so I don't know where you, you want to get your coats from these days. Uh, but Laodicea, it was like the Paris or the Milan of its day. It was a bit of a fashion label, so to speak. Well, Jesus says there's no amount of fine clothing in your city that can cover over your sin, but I can cover your sin. My righteousness can cover your unrighteousness. We need Christ's riches. We need Christ's righteousness. And the last thing, we need Christ's remedy. We need Christ's remedy. The last thing that Jesus promises to give these people in verse 18 is a remedy. He says, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And again, uh, Jesus is cutting them down to size here, friends. There was actually an ancient medical research center in the city of Laodicea. And it had produced something called Phrygian powder, which was reported to improve eyesight and get rid of blind spots in your vision. Jesus says, I can open your eyes in a way that no optician or ophthalmologist of your city can. Jesus is saying, I see things better than anybody. I can see whether love for the gospel and repentance of sin and worship of God are really priorities in your life as they should be. I can see whether you're zealous or lukewarm. I can see the blind spots that you've missed. Aiken says spiritual compromise and complacency are cataracts that shut out the light of God's word. There are things for all of us, friends, that can come in and blur our spiritual vision and uh, stop us from seeing things clearly. Jesus, by his word and spirit, can open our eyes just the way he miraculously opened the eyes of that man we read about in Mark chapter 8. Do you need any of these things from Jesus today, friends? Do you need to go to him? Perhaps go to him for the very first time. And confess, I have sin that I can't cover up. I've been putting my faith in some person, some lifestyle, some team, some cause that's disappointed me and failed me. I need my eyes open to see all things clearly. I need my priorities put back in order. I need my faith strengthened. Well, Jesus says to you this evening, as he said to the Laodiceans, I love you. I know what is best for you. Come to me and you will have all that you need. 
So because he loves us, Jesus warns us about being lukewarm. Because he loves us, Jesus provides for all of our needs. And thirdly and finally this evening, friends, because he loves us, Jesus has our future secured. Because he loves us, Jesus has our future secured. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now that's an absolutely wonderful verse. It's also a bit of a misunderstood verse. Uh, apparently, there is, apparently there's a famous painting that depicts Jesus standing outside a door, like a, looking like a bit of a lonely, hopeless figure. Uh, but there's only a handle on the door on the inside. And so the picture suggests poor Jesus is standing at the door, just hoping that somebody will let him in, like a bit of a homeless reject. Well, that's not quite accurate. Jesus makes clear, Revelation makes clear that if we do open the door, Jesus brings a feast to us. Jesus enters into our lives and if we confess our sins and cry out to him in faith, he enters into our lives in grace. He enters into our lives bringing with him, as it were, a table prepared and furnished and ready for us to enjoy. You remember the words of Psalm 23, you prepare me a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Friends, if we open the door to Jesus, he brings a feast of blessings to us. He wants to come into the church in Laodicea and liven them up. He wants to renew their zeal. He wants to rekindle their love for him and for each other and their witness. And so if you or I have felt ourselves growing at all lukewarm in recent days, maybe lukewarm in our devotion to God's word, to prayer, to serving him in the ways he's called us to do, friends, listen to Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. table fellowship of eating a meal at a table together it was in the ancient world and it still is a sign of friendship um, we're glad that the restrictions are easing up we can uh, we can have what is it two households six adults whatever it is mixing together indoors now and so we can get back to some table fellowship and we're looking forward to that together but the greatest table fellowship of all will be the fellowship we enjoy around the table with Jesus when he returns and brings his kingdom with him. And if you want a seat at that table, don't ignore the knock of Jesus on your heart tonight. As one preacher has said, he's knocking on the door tonight. There will come a day when he will just kick down the door in judgment. But tonight he's knocking and he's graciously inviting you to sit at table and be with him. The last thing he says in verse 21 the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus has said those words, the one who conquers. He said that to every letter, uh, to every church that he's written to rather. And you might remember I mentioned the very first week uh, that the word conquers here 
uh, it's, it's, come, it's where we get, it's the origin of the word Nike. Uh, so every time you pull on a pair of Nike trainers or a Nike t-shirt or you just see that swish, the Nike symbol, uh, think of the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, the one who conquers, Jesus says, they will reign with him forever. They will reign with him forever. Can we really fully grasp that? Have we really stopped to meditate upon that? We will reign alongside Jesus. When he comes back, we're going to stand with him over the nations of the world. We've seen hints of this in other letters as well. There will be no moment, friends, when Jesus comes back. Some sincere Christians believe this, but there will be, there will be no moment of standing there to hear Jesus read out all our sins and then tell us we're forgiven. There is no need for that whatsoever. If we're Christians, that has been dealt with. Jesus has dealt with our sins once and for all at the cross. They never need to be mentioned again. No, what's going to happen when Jesus returns, friends, is that we will rise to meet him in the air, as Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians. We will come down with him as he, as he arrives. We will go out to meet him and come down with him. And we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now take your seat alongside me. Friends, Jesus loves us. And because he loves us, he has secured our future for us. It's not a future with anything to be afraid of. It's a future to look forward to. And this is really the great theme of the book of Revelation from here on. God willing, as I say, we'll come back to it uh, eventually. And, and when we do, we'll see over and over again that for the rest of the book, our attention is directed towards the Lamb on his throne. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, slain on the cross, but risen and victorious. We'll see it very clearly in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 4. There's a, there's a wonderful vision of the, the worship being offered to Jesus in heaven. And Revelation 4.11 says, speaking of the various beings who are gathered in heaven, it says they cast their crowns before the throne, before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. As I said to you when we began our series, friends, Revelation is all about Jesus, the risen, reigning Jesus. It's about where Jesus is today and what he has prepared for us tomorrow. A couple of people said to me the first few weeks that it was that after I moved to Dremore, they said, I hear you're preaching on Revelation. You know, it's a sort of, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting book to start off with. Why would we not want to study Revelation? Yes, I'll, I'll accept there can be some, there, there are some difficult parts to this book. There are some things that Christians disagree about in this book, but it's all about Jesus. It is ultimately about the fact that he is risen, reigning, and returning. Why would we not want to think about that? And that risen, reigning, and returning Jesus, friends, is also knocking on the doors of our hearts this evening, urging us not to be lukewarm, but to love him, to trust him to provide for all of our needs, both now and in the future. 
The great challenge of the seven letters to the seven churches is to hold fast to Jesus. We've heard those words several times as well over the weeks. Hold fast. Keep on going today. And look forward to being with Jesus tomorrow. Does that sum up your life this evening? You're holding on to Jesus today. You're willing to witness for Jesus today. And you're looking forward to being with Jesus tomorrow. If you're cold or lukewarm towards him, he warns you this evening, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you open the door to Jesus, he promises you, I will grant you to sit on my throne. What a prospect. What a, what a wonderful picture to keep in mind as we witness in the name of Jesus today. We will eat with him and we will rule with him tomorrow. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, let's stand as we meet the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we've only studied three chapters of this wonderful book of Revelation, and we, have, we trust and we pray, Lord God, that we have seen Jesus more clearly. We have seen Jesus not just as he was during his earthly ministry, uh, a, a very much a marginalized figure, a, a misunderstood figure, someone that was uh, ignored by many, someone who, with those who did not have eyes to see it, he, he, he blended into the crowd. Uh, as Isaiah said, there was nothing about him that drew men toward him unless you by your spirit were working in them and, and changing them. But Lord God, Revelation begins to open our eyes to who Jesus is today, a glorious and mighty king, one who not only cares about his church on earth, but speaks to his church on earth, who sees us and has a, a more accurate perspective upon us than we have upon ourselves. Father God, we, we hope and we pray that we are not lukewarm Christians, that we're not a lukewarm congregation. Father, we hope and we pray that we're not a, a congregation like the likes of Thyatira, who will compromise with your word, who will tolerate what we shouldn't tolerate. We hope and we pray, Lord God, that you would protect us from being a church that has lost our love as Ephesus had. They had their doctrine right, but they had their relationships all wrong. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a church that is full of love for one another, full of zeal for our witness, full of passion for our worship. Father, we pray that in the days and weeks and months to come, you would increasingly make us such a church and increasingly make us those types of Christians. We pray, Lord, for any who have heard this message this evening, who are entirely cold to the Lord Jesus Christ, or who perhaps are lukewarm, who are going through the motions, who are in some undefined, vague way, thinking that they're all right for no particular reason. Father, speak to them, change them, challenge them, make them zealous for Christ, we pray. And we ask all these things in and through our Savior's name and for his sake. Amen.